Welcome back to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Rob, it's a pleasure to have you back on the show. Usually our discussions aim a certain direction. It's always good talking about the Kennedy stuff. I'm telling you, man. Yeah, well, that's that's pretty much all I do, Robbie. <laughs> Thanks for having me back, buddy. Uh, do you get obsessed with it? Like, do you ever have to take a step back? I've talked to so many researchers that just have to take a step back sometimes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I, dude, I've quit my podcast like three or four times, um, actually, <laughs> just out of frustration and burnout and just the need to get away from things for a little while. I mean, it does get overwhelming uh, every so often, and you do get burnt out from it, looking at this stuff all the time. You know, if you live it and breathe in it, yeah, it gets uh, it gets old sometimes. I got for my birthday, someone from work had gotten me a Jack Ruby where he's like getting interviewed and he's got that smiling grin on his face. It looks like he knows something. Someone had got that on a giant board, like a painting thing. So I have it hanging over my bathroom. And um, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, maybe it's time to take like a little step back. I'm starting to collect a whole bunch of JFK memorabilia and stuff like that. But it is fascinating. And I think John Orr says it best. It's got everything you could possibly want. It's got mob figures. It's got, you know, magic bullets. It's got. Government spies. corruption, yeah, spies, mystery, you know, the whole the whole nine yards. It's the ultimate murder mystery, you know, and it's never been solved to everyone's satisfaction. You know, the lone nutters thinks that thinks that it was solved back in the 60s. And, you know, all of the researchers might have a piece of the puzzle, but they don't have everything. And of course, nobody can agree on everything. So we're still here doing our thing. <laughs> I mean, the 60th anniversary is coming up. I want to get to talking about, you know, you're obviously speaking there, but has this, was this your first like conspiracy? I mean, I, I hate using that word, especially when it comes with the Kennedy assassination, but does this make you more open to conspiracy talks or maybe certain government corruption stuff? Like I've had to look into the whole area of the 60s and 70s and just kind of keep an open mind about a lot of stuff that was going on back then that seems kind of crazy for our government to do, but now I just don't put it above them. No, I mean, no, I mean, I was always open-minded because of course I grew up in the seventies um, and would see things, you know, like these, uh, these crazy TV shows, like in search of with Leonard Nimoy and stuff and see the Bigfoot stuff and the aliens and um, you know, this classic Egyptian stuff. And it was just fascinating to me, you know, it was just very, very cool thing to kind of look into, you know, you, you go to the library and, be able to look up books uh, about, you know, Bigfoot and or UFOs or abductions or, you know, crazy stuff, man. And, uh, you know, of course, grew up with Scooby-Doo, you know, <laughs> watching the, uh, you know, this crazy uh, mystery uh, cartoons and stuff like that. And it was always, you know, back of mind. And then, you know, as I got a little older and into the 80s and stuff, and I, I, think, I think I went over this, but you know, I had to do a paper on uh, Kennedy in high school. And in the course of researching the paper, you know, you come across the the assassination story because it's a big part of his presidency. Um, and, you know, things just didn't sound right even back then, you know. And then the movie came out, of course, JFK, uh, Oliver Stone's movie. And then that throws you into a whole other tailspin back then. And this is all pre-internet stuff, man. So, you know, if you if you were interested in this stuff, you didn't know anybody or you didn't live close to Dallas or you didn't, uh, you know, go to the library and actively search these books out so you could read more about it. I mean, you were clueless. 
Um, and with the, you know, the invention of the internet, it made things a whole lot easier to connect with other people and, and do research. So ever since then, man, it's been 35 years going strong now. So would you ever think that it was as complicated, you know, when you first looked into it, I would have never thought that I would have been this obsessed with it, or at least, you know, been talking about, it. I mean, it practically controlled the last year of my show, just Constantly, I mean, every single moment I was trying to find someone who was a Kennedy researcher to try and understand it more because there's just so much about it that you would never think of. The education system or my class when I first saw the Zapruder film junior year high school, never, you never would have thought that it would have opened up a can of worms into this. Yeah, I classify it like two different ways. So you have your, you have your casuals and you have your serious. And you see the casual researchers if that's what you want to call them, um, you know, but they, they read something and think they've solved the case and, and spout it all over social media. And, uh, you know, you see things start to get recycled over time. Like the limo driver did it or, you know, the, the mafia did it, uh, you know, and so on and so forth. And these things just keep coming back up and up and up. And it's like, ah, okay, we've, we've knocked this down like three times already. And here it comes again, but it's the casuals, but it's more serious researchers who look below the surface of that conspiracy theory. Okay. So there's a broad conspiracy theory, say the CIA did it. Okay. Well, either that is a very broad statement or it's a very specific statement. If it's something like, okay, the CIA did it specifically. Was it an officially sanctioned action by the CIA? And if it was, where is the documentation for all this? You'll never see it, ever. So, but then, you know, if you start to get even more specific, okay, well, maybe it wasn't an officially sanctioned CIA event, but maybe there was folks associated with the CIA who kind of went rogue on their own and got involved in this plot because they felt that it was in the best interest of the country. Okay. Well, then you need to dive down on that even more. Well, you know that they didn't do it themselves. They used cutouts. So then you have to dive down even further, another layer. Um, so there's a, there's a big difference to me between a serious assassination researcher and a casual, you know, you see these casuals come up all the time. Oh, they put a pillow over Jack Ruby's head after he shot Oswald. What's that mean? Was it really Ruby? You know, stuff like that. It's just you, people could waste their time and tread in water about the magic bullet and tippet witnesses and, and all this stuff and the medical evidence, you know, stuff you'd never be able to figure out. I would consider myself more of a casual researcher only because I'm just trying to get the public in on the discussion. Cause I think once you start looking at it more from the top layer and actually look inside of it a little bit, people will all see that there's something going on here, whether it's a red flag. Now I do think it's kind of the military industrial complex or the, what I would call the CIA, but I don't ne necessarily know if I still believe the same as I guess what I thought before, which was that the CIA orchestrated this grandmaster plot because I, I don't think the people that did it are the same people that covered it up. You know, I can look and show you a lot of things that were Dallas police error issues, witness statements that obviously talked about, like um, there's a witness statement from a cop. If you look at the, was it the history matters, the, the DPD records, 
And it was a person seeing someone approach or go up the ramp to the police thing and gave a description of the guy, but nobody stopped him. He just went inside. He wasn't allowed to be in there, whether that was Ruby or not, the person or document doesn't say, but the guy, there's a testimony that says that, and nobody bothered to pursue that down. I mean, even with the Texas theater, they were looking for a certain individual, not for killing the president, but for killing a Dallas cop. Like there's a lot of police, Dallas police error that was covered up. Now, whether that's for something that nobody wanted to pursue to get Dallas police in trouble. But for me, it was just about trying to find all the faults and all the issues, which doesn't sound like proper for our government to handle a certain scenario of this matter. And there's plenty of that, whether it's destruction of evidence or you know disappearing evidence or you know saying that you got the killer of the president within 48 hours and eliminating the possibility of a getaway driver like you know there's these certain things that i feel like if you just mention to people they go what and they kind of like raise their head a little bit so I, that's my interest into it is just trying to get the public in on the discussion but you hit more of a serious um flow with things you go inside you look at documents you do i mean each episode of yours kind of and analyzes an individual aspect of it whether it's the curtain rod issue or just some statements i mean i trust your opinion overall which that's i appreciate you being a serious researcher yeah um like i, I said, said going back to you did say a lot huh. um going back to the um like ruby in the basement being able to shoot oswald um and the ineptitude of the dallas police you know it even even prior to that, you know, Ruby was in the police station acting as a or pretending to be with the press, you know, asking questions. Uh, he had, you know, his glasses on, his little notepad and stuff. And you see him kind of stalking Oswald all that all weekend. So and look back in the early 60s like that, it wasn't it wasn't too terribly hard to impersonate a member of the press. You know what I mean? And there was a lot of press in the basement of, you know, during during Oswald's transfer. So it's it's not out of the realm of possibility that you know he he snuck in there with his with his nice suit on and his in his fedora hat, and you know posing as a member of the media. You know you have you have cameramen, you have sound guys, you have reporters, you know you have all these technical people. I mean it was it was pure chaos down there. But he had to be identified, right? Because he did correct somebody on the Fair Play for Cuba committee. Uh, well, Henry Wade knew. I think Henry Wade figured out who he was after the fact. He was aware of this person named Jack Ruby, but he didn't know what he looked like. And that was when uh, Ruby corrected him, you know, when he said something about the Fair Play for Cuba. And uh, but nobody identified him right then and there. You know, this is after the fact. You know, when you're looking back at pictures and and stuff like that, when you see him in the hallway, these movie little news news clips and stuff. Um, but to your point, I think a lot of this ineptitude of the Dallas police, the ineptitude of the FBI, because nobody wants to look bad in the eyes of the public and the world. I mean, you have the eyes of the world on you. You don't want to look like a bunch of Keystone cops. You did, the FBI didn't want to look bad. They never wanted to look bad. In fact, Hoover, <laughs> you know, used to get pissed, if, you know, if, if the FBI was ever made to look bad. You know, the FBI always got their man. You know what I'm saying? Well, they influenced movies, Hoover's G-Men. They invaded Hollywood to try and make sure that they can manipulate the way that the media was portraying 
uh, the FBI to make them look like these superheroes. Like, I think the rule of thumb was the bad guys can shoot as much as they want, but they have to miss. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, a thousand bullet holes in the car, but he's all right. Um, but yeah, it was a lot of it was ineptitude, and it was, uh, you know, cover your ass mode and cover things up. You know, all the all of the things you did wrong, cover it up. And the same applies, you know, to the Dallas police, the FBI, the CIA, the Secret Service, you name it. People were in cover your ass mode. And, hey, don't look too closely at this mode because you might see something. So, of course, the cover up is going to be different than the actual crime. And just because you're covering something up doesn't mean you did something wrong. Uh, or, well, you may have done something wrong, but, but you may have not actually been part of committing the crime but you need to cover up the fact that you were inept at your job and maybe you didn't do everything you could have type thing so a lot of that a lot of that and a lot of people confuse the cover-up with the conspiracy you know and think that just because there was a cover-up that they were part of the conspiracy but that's not necessarily true when it comes to who might have did it, I'm not going to ask you really who did it in case you don't know. But if there's – I mean I don't know. Either, I don't, so it's a mystery for 60-something years now. Uh, but do you think all these people that say it was this person or it was James Files or it was any of these types of people, do you – I mean that's not, – it's not that it's misinformation, but I, I feel like half of these people don't believe some of those things as well too. I mean I, you joined TikTok. I'm on TikTok. There's a bunch of people on TikTok. Just type in the hashtag JFK. You get all of it. You get the craziest videos I've ever seen that people mash things together. And just like you were mentioning about kind of social media going this way. I don't know if these people actually believe that, but for them, it's a, I don't know if it's a good way to get clicks or something like that, but stuff that's like, I just watched a video where a guy said that, I think one of the guys part of the education forum, but he talked about that JFK was killed because of UFOs and trying to release that. And I was like, hang on a fucking second. Like there's a lot of reasons that JFK was probably killed, but the UFO one that you're just grabbing at like air. Well, not really, not really, Robbie. There are documents dated November of 1963. I don't that think have... he was killed. Uh, no, no, I'm not saying he was, but <laughs> There's more than air there. There is something to grab onto, but, um, and it is interesting. Um, the documents are interesting when, when JFK is asking the CIA, you know, hey, basically, are UFOs real? What the hell is going on with these things? You know, type of thing. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. Like, I did a show um, <laughs> about a TikTok that a listener had sent me about, and it had to do with Mandela effect which I'm sure you're aware of in the Kennedy assassination. And this person swore, swore that the JFK limousine only held four people that day. It had a front seat and a back seat, two drivers up front and Jackie and JFK. No, no Connellys, no jump seats, no three rows. And they're, they're saying this is a Mandela effect. Oh, I, I think I watched this episode because one of the ones in the museum or whatever, I, it, it was in the video. I don't know if it was your podcast episode or what I saw. The one showed only four seats and one of the museums are replicas. And that's not right. There was six because he had to think Connolly and all that. Yeah. Well, even back then, I mean, now to duplicate 
the 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 JFK limousine, you know, to be an exact replica, it costs a lot of money because you have to cut it, stretch it, add a door, add jump seats, and all this jazz. So when when these like crappy Ripley's Believe It or Not museums or whatever whatever they are, you know, um, want to show something like that, they can't reproduce the limo. They can re- reproduce the Lincoln. The original Lincoln that it was based off of, but that was a basically a four, you know, four seater car, you know, two rows of seats. So that's what people are seeing. And then they also, when they did the uh, Secret Service recreation of the shots in Dealey Plaza, some photos of this got into Life magazine in 1964, and they did it with a a totally different car not a limousine a two-seat car for you know or two-row car with four seats and uh they used a picture from i think it was from his uh houston trip instead of the dallas trip so that's what confuses a lot of people as well you know there's so many other photographic evidence from that day there's so much other film evidence from that day um, just random people took, you know, standing on the sidewalk when the limo came by. There's all these other movies that we all know so well, like the Zapruder film and the Knicks film, and then much more film where you can clearly see the limousine has six people in it. And, you know, it's not a Mandela effect. It's just you just don't remember correctly and you're not interested enough to get the facts straight or even look into it enough. You know, you know what I mean? It's it's yeah. this casual thing, you know. Do you think the Zapruder film was altered? Whew. It's hard to say. I mean, there's parts of it that make you scratch your head, you know, when you're looking at the background. And, you know, these these nice colorized, stabilized versions that we have now this this is not the original film, you know. Th- this is something that people have manipulated um, to create basically the clearest, colorized, stabilized version, so we can study it more. You know, if you go back to the earliest and try to watch like the earliest copies of the Zapruder film, they are they almost I don't even know if they were black and white or if they were so faded in color that they looked black and white. Um. Very grainy, you know. It's, it's something totally different from what you see now. If you were to look up, you know, on YouTube, you know, there's a, a pruder film now. Um, so it's definitely been manipulated from its initial thing. But as far as it being altered back then, I I have no idea. Do you think it's weird that a lot of people only know if they know about the Kennedy assassination, they only know the Zapruder film. But when you mention there's like 10 other films out there and I know some of them, they don't show as much as like, obviously the Zapruder film shows like the real stuff. That's like the, the best one, but there's still other films that I find interesting when you watch them, like the guy who stops filming and but he looks up at the window and then his camera runs out of film. Like, to me, that's just fascinating stuff. I mean, you get the whole buildup before and then obviously the after or you get like I, I maybe a piece in the middle or something like that. But there's like 12 other films out there that people have never even heard of. They've only heard of the Zapruder film. 
Yeah, yeah. You know, the, the next film shows it basically the same thing as a Pruder film does, but from the other side. And, you know, a lot of these uh, news guys are riding in the follow-up cars um, and they were catching good quality video, you know, as they're coming through the motorcade. That's where you get the, uh, like the Darnell film and things like that. These people that were professionals and not just bystanders, um, but bystanders, you know, did, uh, did take some good films in the plaza that a lot of people don't even know about. So, and like one of the things that I've been looking into for the past year and a half that we're going to be uh, doing in Lancer, you know, just so happens we're looking into people named Martin with the last name Martin, first name start with J or a J in their name or middle name, uh, some, something. And we're up to like 25 people now that are associated with the assassination in some form or fashion that have the initials J in their name, either first or second name and Martin. And, you know, looking at that, I, I didn't even know going into it until I started looking into it. There was a guy named John Martin Jr. who made a film in Daly Plaza and also filmed up on the knoll. And I had no clue. Never seen the film before. And he worked at the Postal Annex, um, and he was standing on Houston Street, right there at the corner of Houston and Maine, and he followed um, the limo as it turned the corner onto Main Street, or I'm, I'm sorry, onto Houston Street, and started going up towards the uh, school book depository. And if this guy would have been closer, he might have caught, you know, the window. But before the, before the limo turned, he turned his uh, camera off and went over through the grass, I guess, to get a better angle. And then, you know, the shots rang out and all that stuff. And then he, everybody was going up to the, to the knoll area. So he went up there and started filming. I had no idea, but that's just the kind of stuff, you know, you, you just start looking into things and learn all this new stuff. Why so many people with the initial J, but then last name Martin, you know, <laughs> like we talking about like somebody using a cutout name or copy name. Not necessarily. I mean, like, some of there's 30 be. people in the CIA named Lynch, and I'm pretty sure that's not their fucking name unless the CIA is just hiring people named Lynch. Yeah. You know, it's uh, something we kind of figured um, just from looking into this that, you know, Martin as a surname is, is like the, it's like number 20. So it's like, a middle of the road last name. Okay. Like the number one last names in the United States are like Smith, Brown, Johnson, Jones, you know, the, this kind of thing. Right. So the, the probability of having a lot of people with the last name that are in the top 10 is a pretty good uh, bet. But then, you know, you start looking at how many how many people associated with the assassination have the last name Brown? All of them. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you know, um, yeah, there's some Johnsons. Yeah, there's President Johnson. There's a guy, Johnson, in New Orleans. Um, other than that, couldn't tell you. There's some Jones, you know, Jones Printing Company in New Orleans. But you don't have 25 like you do with the Martin surname. So if you're going to create a cutout or a 
alias, you don't want a very popular name because, you know, then it's, it just doesn't look right. But you don't want something so obscure that it stands out, like, you know, Zabrowski or something like that. Um, you don't want to be memorable either way. Um, so it, Martin is kind of a middle of the road, not too common, not too obscure last name. And the fact that there's 25 of them associated with the assassination in some form or fashion, even if it's tangential, just from looking at all this stuff, it's like, oh, okay. But then you start diving deep. Like a good example is Jack Martin. Okay, Jack S. Martin, you know, in New Orleans, the guy that got pistol whipped by Guy Bannister, the guy that dropped a dime on David Ferry right after the assassination happened. Um, his name, Jack S. Martin, is an alias. His name was Edward Stewart Suggs, his real name. But the Jack Martin name was an alias. And, uh, you know, but you run into um, several other people using a name Martin as an alias. So you have Lewis McWillie, one of Ruby's buddies, using that Lawrence J. Martin as an alias. You have uh, Eugenio Martinez using that name as an alias. I think he was using Jack P. Martin and Jack N. Martin as aliases. So, but then you have legitimate people named Martin thrown into the mix. Like you have uh, the John Martin Jr. guy that we talked about earlier, the filmer in Dealey Plaza. There's another guy, uh, John T. Martin, who was from Minnesota, who filmed uh, Walker, and then he filmed Oswald in New Orleans on the same reel of film. And then you have James Herbert Martin, who was Marina's like babysitter right after the assassination. You have James Martin Thorne, who was Marina's lawyer. The biggest fucking family I've ever seen. Yeah. So, you know, the, it just goes on and on and on. It's like, wow, then you do deep dives on some of this stuff and it's, it gets crazy. Do you think it was um, not really a misinformation thing, but do you think that was a way that the government was trying to make it even more clouded? So it's hard to investigate. Like, do you believe that there is like, so obviously there's things like, I don't know if you believe John Armstrong in the whole dual Oswalds and two different people. I believe someone was using his name. I don't necessarily believe the whole, like there's two identical like Oswalds, but one that was in the military and one that wasn't, I don't know. Maybe I just don't have all the evidence on it, but there's a thing like his jaw looking a little bit different. I mean, he could have had a tooth infection, man. That'll increase your jaw a little bit. You know what I'm saying? Like an abscess or something like that. So it's not so much for me where I'm like, I don't know. That's, that's like the Zapruder film thing. I gotta be like, ah, I'm not going to fight that fight, but I definitely think someone was using his name was shooting hay barrels and shooting at uh, targets on, at a firing range of other people saying this is what he was going to do to the president. Um, so I definitely think that there's obviously some misinformation or someone was going around saying I'm Lee Harvey Oswald and all this. But with the amount of names of like that that are in Dealey Plaza at the time or just around that area, do you think that's like a way that the government could have maybe put in some misinformation into the case? Because there's a bunch of red herrings in this whole thing if you really look at it. Some of these will chase you down on pursuits for 30 years, 40 years. Um, and I've seen and spoken to people that have gone down this whole aspect. And then you get into some thing where like they end 
end up saying Israel did it. And I'm like, nope, fuck off. I'm, no, I'm running off on that one. I get there's like a lot of Israel, like documents that, you know, point that direction. But there's a whole thing I'm not touching on that aspect of things. But everyone that has their own research or investigation into the Kennedy conspiracy or the assassination, they do come with a lot of information to support their case. So it's like you could honestly take the guess who or pick whoever you want in this whole matter because they all have so much. And I have to think that that's got to be some type of tactic. Um, where is it not pointing to? Who is it not pointing to? And that's where you start looking in and the, the one that I've seen the least amount of evidence on that it seems like a lot of researchers try and go after is the cia or is something like that because then it gets into then who are the individual names and everyone you look up that goes down to and they're dead so it's like you're not going to get anything from that yeah i agree you know you look at somebody like like the mafia okay the mafia is used to taking things into their own hands at a very cl much closer range than a sniper normally you don't have a, a mafia sniper you know what i mean no, they do what they did to Roselli. They put you in a barrel and chop you up. Right. They do shit like that. You know, they waste your ass coming out of the steakhouse and, you know, broad, you know, just psh. damn right in front of the Applebee's. So yeah. They, they, they want you to know who did it. You know what I mean? It's not like you're using this mysterious sniper who, you know, comes and disappears in the end of the night. You never knew who they are. So, but then, then the question is, okay, well, who, who paid the sniper? Did the mafia pay the sniper? They have a lot of money, you know, but so do a lot of other people. <laughs> so, you know, the extreme right wing is heavily financed back then. Uh, the mafia has a lot of money. Um, you know, a lot of these anti-Castro Cuban exiles and, and anti-Castro uh, Americans, you know, they were raising a lot of money back then to, to fight Castro. Um, and they were they were going on, you know, around the country doing these speeches, meeting with private citizens who had a lot of money, who weren't afraid to whip out their checkbook and write a check. So, you know, it's it's it, it just comes down to ideology and money for me, you know. You find it hard, like with some researchers, obviously, everyone kind of puts their own political bias into it a little bit, depending on if you think that the mob did it or this did it. I've noticed it's like either conservatives, it's liberals, it's all this, and it kind of gets a little bit difficult to understand. Um, I, you've interviewed researchers as well, too, as much as I have. I'm just curious if you came across some of the political bias. Like, do you believe the whole like Castro was innocent and all this? I've seen a lot of people trying to fight that fight of Castro is innocent. We shouldn't have been over there. I agree we should have been over there, but I also don't agree that he's innocent. I, I think that obviously there's evidence to show that he was pretty bad to his people too, but that would get me in trouble with some JFK researchers because that's more of a, I don't know, that you would call that right wing, I guess, but I do believe Dallas was corrupt too. Yeah, but you look at you look at what Castro was doing over there and nobody ever did a damn thing about it. Ever including us, including the Soviets, including anybody. Castro lived and him and his brother lived a nice long life up until just recently. Um, you know, within a couple of years ago, when these guys managed to outlive and outsmart and outfox everybody, you know. So they only became a problem when they got they kicked everybody out of uh Cuba, the mob, the government. 
that's when we started seeing that the government was talking about Castro more propaganda. If you look, it went up more about Castro and this threat of communism really started sparking out there, which honestly, he was just reclaiming his land. I mean, kicking everybody out, but like, I don't have a problem with that. Yeah. And you got to look at it too. Okay. The mafia and, and more so like the Traficante area of Florida, they didn't just have one interest in Cuba. Okay. They had, they're like an octopus. They have multiple interests. So one gets, one arm gets shut up, you know, cut off. And, you know, it, the other ones are still bringing money in. They're still doing okay. So even though, yeah, yeah, Castro kicked them out and they, they cut off a, a supply of money for them. You know, yeah, it would have pissed them off. And yeah, they might have tried to take him out at some point, but it, it didn't work. So you move on. You know, you're not going to waste your time and resources on this fight when, it, you know, you're already over here. All eyes are on you. Um, when you can just move on to, to other things, you know, it's just like just like Las Vegas, you know, when 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 all the uh, uh, the gamblers and the, and the gangsters and everybody were in Las Vegas, eventually, you, you know, it came time for them to go and they had to clean up Las Vegas and get them the hell out of there. And, you know, now, where's the mafia now? I don't yeah. know. <laughs> I don't know. The the mob thing gets difficult because there's like a bunch of documents you can read where apparently someone was having a conversation of a car ride. So I might you missed this big event or something like that. I don't know if you came across that, but I've heard it briefly. I've never chased it or pursued it very much. But Blakey, when I spoke with him, he obviously is convinced that there was a mob thing going on. But he also has this kind of slight that the CIA withheld documents from them, which they did. Now, whether they want to call it national security or something else, it's important that we're like we're on the mob subject. First of all, I don't believe the mob necessarily did everything like you can't try and mess with an autopsy. That's something a little bit higher up than the mob. But like I said, separating the people who did it with the people that covered it up. But one of the films coming out this year is David Mamet's. And that is focused on that. The mob did it. I mean, there's four films, I think, coming out about the Kennedy thing this year. So. I'm curious, do you think that popular culture is doing more of a, even, I won't say podcast, but social media, like TikTok, stuff like that. Do you think it's making it even harder to understand the Kennedy assassination, or do you think it's playing an important part in keeping it alive? Um, I think it's a little bit of both. You know, I think uh, it's, it's always important, no matter what the subject is, as long as it has to do with the Kennedy assassination, it's important to have it out there. Cause it's a reminder that it happened or else, you know, you forget history out of sight, out of mind. But on the converse, when you have all these movies coming out, of course it's a movie and it, a movie has to have a movie has to be entertaining. <laughs> you know, it has to be uh, gripping and have to, it has to have a good story, good characters, uh, action. And, you know, you take mafia, I mean, they're the source of some of the greatest movies that we have in Hollywood. You know, just look, look no further than The Godfather, Goodfellas. You know, these are great movies, you know. Um, because they're a joy to watch, because they're entertaining, because they have great characters, because they keep you enthralled in the story. So how accurate would it be, you know, for Hollywood to come out with a story of 
you know, rogue elements of our of the CIA did it, like like the executive action movie in the early seventies. You never got another movie like that after after that. I mean, Oliver Stone owns a little bit, but it was very not overt, but kind of covert. Um, and I just think Hollywood sees a good story. They see, you know, okay, there's a mafia angle that always sells. Uh, and if we can get good characters, big name actors, uh, it's going to make money. That's what they make movies for. They make movies to make money. Bottom line. So that's what it can do. But I also think that it can, even though it might not be accurate um, as far as what actually happened, you know, if it can get people interested in the case, then great, you know. I mean, do you think that the public would be interested in something that was more factual based, just sticking with what we know and has been proven for 60 years? Like I get the Hollywood thing. It's got, it's what sells it's, but for me, I don't know. I, I don't appreciate that as much, you know, when they really try and glamor it up. I think Oliver Stone's JFK, I've never seen it, but I, I think it's important because it did establish the assassination records review review board. That's, that's like, I mean, the end payoff of a film, fuck the check. That's awesome. But I know that there's a lot added into it that was kind of Hollywooded up and necessarily wasn't true, which I kind of look at it from like, I think the public, especially the amount of documentaries that are trending on Netflix all the time now, that a lot of people would be interested in just being like, tell me what the facts are. Like, no matter, I don't want any bias included in it. Yeah, that'd be great if there was a movie like that. But, you know, then you look at like uh, the the assassination and, and Mrs. and Ruth Payne or whatever that movie was just came out yeah. not too long ago. You know, it's it's a slow burn, man. Yeah, you might be able to get it on Amazon or whatever. And I just saw that the, um, the guy is actually having a showing in Middleburg, Virginia, which is like a half an hour from where I live. It's right outside of D.C., um, he's having a showing of that movie. Um, and actually the Kennedys used to have a, a house right, right in Middleburg, Virginia. And it's not a very big town. And I don't I didn't even think that they had a theater. So I don't know. They might be showing it up against the wall of the, uh, are you talking about Max Good, Max Good's film. Oh yeah. That was a good film. Yeah. But I'm saying how much, how much exposure did it get? It didn't get like Hollywood exposure. You know what I mean? And I don't know how well it did, you know, but, and not to poo-poo the film, but something like that is what you're talking about. Do we want more of? Again, it all boils down to how much money is this movie going to make? Nobody makes a movie just for morals and, you know, posterity. You know, you, you, you do something to make, to make money. And whether it's factual, whether it's documentary style, whether it's Hollywoodized in some form or fashion, that's what it all boils down to. And, and to me, any of those categories are great for any of it coming out. Let it all come out. You know, people can go see what they want. They can be entertained or they can be enthralled. And, uh, you know, hopefully it just gets more people interested in the case. Bottom line. I mean, does it get like we had uh, the recent Secret Service or the day we're recording this is when it happened. But his book is coming out and he completely changed his statement after 60 years. It's a lot like Buell Frazier 
and then kind of changing his, you know, that, you know what I'm saying, right? Like that's, I don't want to say he's doing it because of his book coming out, but it's like, where were you the other times and all this? And I wouldn't, I'm not going to call this person out, but there's a person in the RFK assassination that took photographs. I think we both know who that is. Um, but uh, he's not, he flipped his opinion. When I talked to him on the phone, he was like, these other people took me out of context. I'm not a conspiracy theorist at all. And all this, even though there's hours of content of him talking about how there was a grand massive conspiracy, but then I find out he's got a book coming out. That's the opposite of what, he's been saying for however long. So I go, I look, I get the money aspect. I know people are trying to do whatever, but to me, that's just a big disservice. So, I mean, when it comes to your thoughts, I mean, what are your thoughts on the bullet being found in the limousine that was crushed up? That goes with John Orr's work, but I also think, you know, he's got a book coming out. Like, I don't know why he chose now to speak up 60 years later. Yeah. We're talking about, uh, secret service agent, Paul Landis. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, I can understand why he waited this long to speak. I can see both sides of the coin because, you know, this guy was, I think he was like 28 years old when, when the assassination happened. Okay. He's riding on the sideboard of the follow-up car on the right rear, right-hand side. So if there's shots coming from the depository window into that limousine, he is, right under the line of fire, basically. And, you know, you, your job is to protect the president and his wife. And shots ring out in the plaza. You're on the back of this car. And you turn around, you hear the gunshots, and you see the president's head blown into a million pieces. The worst thing that could ever happen. And there's nothing you can do about it. So I could see how badly this would affect this guy mentally, because in the article, it did say, I'm sorry, it did say, I think he managed to work maybe five more years in the Secret Service before he just he just had to quit. Because he he just said, you know, he would relive that moment every day for years and years. And it just haunted him, you know, very hard to sleep, very hard to, you know, live. And so then he just went into being, you know, a, a carpenter or a house painter or whatever he was, you know, and he just forgot everything. He never read the Warren report because he was there and they didn't interview him. Shocker. Um, so he just basically, was done with it after that, you know, and didn't even, so I can understand why I wait all this time. And that maybe recently he realized that, you know, maybe something that he did might hold a little bit more weight than he realized at the time, you know, about putting, putting the bullet on the stretcher. So I understand both sides of, um, you know, and, and Clint Hill and it's in the article as well, poo-pooing his story saying, well, this guy didn't say this stuff back then. Now all of a sudden he's coming out. You know, I get it. That's the easy way to poo-poo this guy. But if if he's being sincere and at, at age 88, when he has this book coming out for the 60th anniversary, if this story is true, well, then... You know, it means a hell of a lot more 
than what people realize because then there had to be more shots or more shooters than just one. There had to be. If this one bullet went a little bit into Kennedy's back and then popped back out and went into the seat cushion, and that's why it looks like it did, well, then where are all these other wounds? You got to explain six other wounds now and in, in, in the president and Connolly. Well, I just don't like the people that defend the magic bullet theory to me just doesn't make sense. And I have people go, oh, well, where's your ballistics cred- credibilities? I was like, well, just look at the, the actual bullets or listen to the phone call with J. Edgar Hoover and Johnson or any other John when Johnson asked for any shots fired at me. And Hoover says three or three shots. They were all fired at President Kennedy. Well, we know that there was the James Tag bullet that's straight off and hit a curb and bounce and hit him in the cheek. That three bullets goes into two, and that creates the magic bullet theory. An investigation is done by people, and people make mistakes. The conspiracies, whether those mistakes were on purpose or not, doesn't mean that you orchestrated the plot or did anything like that. But I consider you as bad as the person who might have took the shot because of the fact that they doubled down on their lies and this idea of – blaming these people for whoever was speaking out about it, calling them a conspiracy theorist. I mean, you talk to people about the Kennedy stuff and they roll their eyes and do that conspiracy talk nonsense. I was like, you know what's conspiracy? Read the church committee report. Find out that the government showed a goddamn heart attack gun in a live courtroom in front of everybody. And everyone's the one dude's going like this with his nose, like going like this at the end tip of his nose because he's trying not to laugh. Because of how insane it is that a guy is holding Frank Church is holding a, a gun with a giant scope on the top of it that can get put someone in a cardiac arrest between 25 and 38 hours. That's nuts. That I would have called a conspiracy. But then you get to the Kennedy stuff. I mean, where do you find people's eyes glaze over when you start even mentioning it? I mean, do you I, I'm sure you don't go around being like, hey. But if someone starts talking about the 60s and maybe you sway the conversation a little bit into the 60s and then they start going, you know who my favorite president was? And you're like, oh, JFK was mine. And let me tell you about his death. It was wrong. I'm just kidding. But do you ever like come across somebody at least the, it being brought up in the discussion or anybody asking you about it, maybe on the street or something? Funny enough, you asked that because um, where I work, I was in this uh management class and one of the icebreakers that they did that day was to write something about yourself that nobody would ever um suspect that you're into or something like that so i wrote up on the piece of paper i said you know i do i do a podcast and i folded the piece of paper up and i put it in the hat and it goes around and and so then they pull a thing out of the hat and um, people have to try to guess who it is. Right. You know, so they pulled that out. You know, I do a podcast and everybody's picking all these other people out and I'm just sitting there like, hmm. and the, the owner of the company and his daughter are in this class as well. And they're kind of running the class. So they asked me, Oh, you do a podcast. What is it about? Then it's that awkward thing. Okay, well, it's about the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And they're like, hmm, really? Well, that's fascinating. Interesting. Who did it? You know, type of thing. And they were very nice, and I'm sure very uh, uh, 
uh, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is. Good hearted in their question. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they were like, Oh, you know, how can we listen to it? You know? And I'm thinking, Oh, Jesus Christ. Fucking um, Google it. <laughs> do it. Well, no, I'm thinking, do I want these people you know, list, listening to my show? Like, you know, like a hundred percent. I can hear the Silk City hot sauce ad in my head. Oh God, the, Jeff. No. As the owner is listening, to, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, Oh my God. So, but I was like, yeah, I said, here, you know, I'll shoot you a link. Uh, feel free and you know, listen. And I was hoping to, against hope that they never would listen. But, uh, you know, then the owner of the company came back and said, yeah, listen to some of your shows. Like, very fascinating stuff, you know, da, 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 da. So very complimentary. They thought it was cool that I did it. So crisis averted, I guess. Have they ever listened to like, a whole show and i'm going off cussing about this that and the other and talking about jack ruby just that, eating that, people that in the stuff. back seat you know like yeah that's fun stuff. <laughs> <laughs> oh man but yeah crazy stuff Whew. i mean obviously a lot of people just don't want to get involved with it or don't even want to look into it because it's a lot and there is a lot of information down there but i mean what would be your best selling points to get people interested into researching it or just getting over the conspiracy hump like if you could give me a not a five minute breakdown but if you can give me the let me just tell you give me two minutes of your time i swear then i'll go away like you have to let the jehovah's witness person in just to get like a cup of coffee or they say they have to use the bathroom and then you realize crap you just let them in your home so now you're gotta walk them out slowly give me that two minute pitch that lets me know i'm outside before i even know i'm outside well i Kind of like what I said before, you know, it's it's true crime at its finest. It's the biggest, and people don't actually think of the assassination as being a, a true crime murder mystery, but that's essentially exactly what it is. So, you know, true crime is one of the biggest genres in podcasting, uh, documentaries, murder. You know, everybody's always wondering who murdered who, want to look at this, make it a murder, uh, convicting a murder, murdering this, Jack the Ripper, you know. Uh, Zodiac killer, all these serial killers, Ted Bundy, and you know, it basically boils down to okay, this is a murder mystery. These people, the government says this is what happened and this is who did it. Okay. But if you look further into it, you realize that the government's full of shit. Okay. And you see, start to see things and patterns develop that leads you away from the official story. And it intrigues you to look further to see if you can try to figure out what the hell happened. At that point, you might not realize that maybe, you know, a couple thousand people before you have tried to do the same thing as well. And, uh, you know, research this case their entire lives without figuring it all out. And but that's the fun of it, you know. You always want to think in the back of your head, man, it'd be crazy if I was the one that broke this case wide open. And finally, after all these years, put all this stuff to rest. You know, of course, that that's the narcissist in you, you know, speaking. But the reality of it is, you know, look, if I can just bring these things forward to people that they may not have ever heard of or known about, then it could definitely help other people who are researching the case put some pieces together. You know, because one person 
can't know everything about the case. You know, Penn Jones said, you know, uh, pick one aspect of the case and research the hell out of it. You know what I mean? And that's actually what I've been doing for the past year and a half, almost two years now. And that's what's kind of culminating at Lancer and, and beyond. So it's pretty crazy. So you are, so you're going to Dallas to speak. Um, first of all, can we meet up so I can hop a plane ticket? I, I'd like to go. I got to go at some point. I mean, that's just the 60th anniversary is the big blowout special. Well, I'm not going. What? I'm you not zooming? going. You zooming in? It will be a virtual presentation. Damn. I will be there in spirit. Dude, I wanted to, we got, come on, we got to go. We got to get like, go to one of those waffle houses at two o'clock in the morning and just talk about JFK shit. I know. Trust me. I tried to make it happen this year. I just cannot get there this year, which sucks. Hopefully my, my partner uh, will be there. I know Doug's going to be there. And I think Bart was going to try to be there, but I don't know if he can be there now. Um, but there's going to be a lot of folks. Um who are going to be in Dallas this year. And trust me, I wish I could be there for the 60th, but it, things are what they are. And, uh, you know, if I can't be there in person, it's still going to be an awesome uh, presentation. I uh, I have to ask, I mean, how did they approach you about doing the Lancer thing? Did David Denton reach out to you or any of whoever was in charge? No, 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 no. Denton's not has nothing to do with Lancer. He's in that JFK historical group. There's like Baker. There's group. 80 groups I'm a part of. I don't even remember the names <laughs> of anymore. No, 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 no. Um, Deborah did. She used to be um, in charge of Lancer. Now it's uh, Kenneth, Kenneth, uh, and Gabby Zedeker. They're they're kind of putting things together okay. down there. And uh, yeah, Kenneth they asked me if I wanted to do a presentation this year, so I said sure. Why not? I, I I could have done, I, I've been approached before to do it. I really wasn't, I, I just didn't feel like I had anything to offer, you know, because it's, it's a pretty big platform with some big swinging dick names sitting around the room. You know what I mean? And you don't want to go in there and, and shit the bed in front of all these people that you've, you know, <laughs> read about and respect and, and all of that, you know, but this year I felt like, you know, we've been looking into something for a while and I think we got some new information and it's interesting as hell and might as well do it. Uh, we do, me and you have to go up with either one Bart whenever he comes down or something like that. We have to go to the archives. We live so close to it and we've never been to the archive. At least I've never been to the archives. Uh, me either. It's only a couple hours away, but I'm like, I don't see that's the whole thing too. Like even when talking to members of the assassination records review board and they talk about going to see the archives. I mean, this is a really kind of important question I'm going to spin to, but you had mentioned before about people obviously spending 40 years, 50 years researching into something. Some of those people are no longer with us. Um, David Lifton's a good example of someone that did great work for the Kennedy assassination. And now after 60 years, they stop the document releases and it brings up an even bigger question is reclassification going to be an issue that we're going to have to experience as well too like are the amount of available documents could they just start sealing stuff back up i mean is it good to start screenshotting everything like most people do in these education forums when they start talking shit on each other you know like it's 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 a really big issue when it comes to 
the documents not being released? I mean, whether it's important stuff, whether it's security issues, whether it's names, any of that type of stuff. I mean, what are your thoughts on them just saying we're not going to give you the rest of these documents? Again, I'm not I don't think I don't think the truth lies in in documents that we haven't gotten. I think any of those documents that ever said anything remotely uh, dealing with the truth like that of the assassination have been long since destroyed, uh, deep six, whatever you want to call it. Because if you think if the CIA has any documents that could possibly implicate them or any of their former employees in the assassination that they would ever see the light of day, you're sadly mistaken. Um, that's the ultimate in the cover your ass mode type of thing. You know, they might put on a good front, you know, for the, for the, for the government's sake. And they give us some little things to wet our whistle here and there, you know, but uh, as far as that smoking gun document, you know, never see it. it doesn't exist. And if it did, it's if it does, it's locked away and deep, deep in the bowels of somewhere. You're never going to see it. Um, as far as um, reclassification, I could kind of see, and you can, and I do believe some of it's happening already um where things were released and now they've been re-redacted and things like that um that's why it's important for people like malcolm blunt you know who, who pretty much lives at the archives or did live at the archives for months at a time it, he would just grab everything he could get his hands on and make copies of it he didn't even read half the shit that he got you know what i mean so he was just grabbing stuff out of all these files, copying it, throwing it in a folder, taking it away. And then, you know, he would go through it at his leisure and see what he had. And a lot of the stuff like what Bart goes, goes through with Malcolm's files is stuff that Malcolm doesn't even know what he has. So when Bart goes through these files, he's looking at it. Basically, he's opening a treasure chest and not knowing what he's going to find. You know, like book outs, handwritten notes. I mean, that's cra that's a crazy find that wasn't out there before that Malcolm had sitting in his folder for 25 years and he never knew it. You know, so I, th I think it's important for the people who have these documents that they got straight from the archives, like back in the 90s and early 2000s to get go through this stuff, get it online, get it in there. And a lot of it is, but a lot of it isn't as well. There's everything is not online. By a, limp, by a long shot, you know, Mary Farrell's great and all, but it doesn't have everything. Yeah. Some of those links you click, they don't lead to anything. It's like a 505 bad gateway or something like that when you click it. Cause I still want to know about the LHO uh, Clinton incident where you got an interview at a mental hospital. I talked to David Montague who worked for the ARB about that. And he was like, I can't discuss that. And I was like, why can't you? You got the file. You've seen it, so but it's not available on the Mary Farrell site for me to click into. So whether it, they reclassified it when he just can't talk about it because he was looking at a list of things that has been submitted and pushed out there. And he's seen stuff that we haven't seen. They've seen had all access to all the materials. So I don't necessarily think there's a grand 
thing to it. But when someone who worked for them says, in my personal opinion, I left there thinking there's no way in hell Lee Harvey Oswald shot the president. I put a lot of weight in that. That is hearsay, but I still go. Uh, he 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 saw the materials. I don't give a shit. That guy's word is God to me. Yeah, yeah, and, and you think you know? Okay, you had the Garrison investigation. You had the HSCA investigation, and a lot of those files aren't online. You know, you got to go to the archives and dig to get this stuff. And a, a lot of it's out there, but a lot of it isn't. And you know, nowadays people take for granted the fact that, okay, people like me and you who have regular Joe jobs and, you know, we have shit to do in our life. You know, we, we can't just go to the archives and spend two months chilling there, you know, just pulling shit out of them. And now they changed it all there anyway. So now you have to make an appointment to go and you have to tell them specifically exactly what you're looking for. Like a file and an FOIA request. They fucked me on that one. I don't know the dates and times of shit. That's what I'm saying. You know, who who knows this stuff? I want to, I just want to go there and I want to say, all right, just bring, start bringing them bo- boxes out. Yeah. You know? Give me a copy machine, bring me some boxes and I'm going to fill my duffel bag every day full of shit and leave. And I'll be back tomorrow, you know? And just keep doing, keep doing, keep doing, and just see what you got after that. Um, because to sit there and look through everything in the archives, you're not going to get through very much. You know, if you sit there and read everything that you that they bring out to you, no, you just need to do what Malcolm did, and that's just grab it, copy it, stuff it, and keep going, and then figure it out later. <laughs> you know. I wonder if Malcolm trusts the archives as much. I don't really trust them. Like I even brought it up with Tom Samaluk from the ARB when he was on here. Um, I just don't I don't think you can trust them. I don't know what because it's right connected to basically the government, right? So it's like they can just can't they just walk in there and be like, we're gonna take this back or take this box back for security reasons. And then if you talk to Gary Shoner, when he went there, there was like one agent that had to be there whenever he was looking for the JFK documents. Like he had to be there. And then I guess this guy wasn't there that day. And they're like, you can come back another time and we'll schedule you in. And he talks about, he's like, why don't don't you have other people that can be here while I go through these files? And they said, all right, yeah, sit there and we'll wait and we'll we'll get someone to help you out. He waited three hours and the guy that called out because he was sick came in and watched him go through the files. And he was like, that guy should not have been there. That guy looked sick as a dog. I wouldn't even shake his hand. So why did it have to be the one guy that was monitoring it? So I don't trust the archives on the simple principle of that. I barely even trust half the stuff that's online as well, too, if it leads to the National Archives website. Uh, you know, unless, like, okay, everything might be in the archives. Not well, Maybe not everything, but everything that they say is there. But it just might not be released to the public yet. And they don't want to give anybody something that shouldn't be released yet for whatever reason. I want Jack Ruby's medical records. That's all I want. (laughs) Yeah, good luck with that. 300-something x-rays in a matter of two weeks. Can somebody explain that to me? That's all I want. Four colonoscopies. Yeah, that's fucking nuts. (laughs) Um. I have to ask about, because I mentioned uh, the dual Oswalds thing. Do you believe the Oswald multiple lookalikes? Not in the sense that there was two individuals that look so similar that one went by Harvey and one went by Lee. I just don't think that's 
Right. But when you go back and you start looking at people, I think Larry Crayford, who was Jack Ruby's um, like barman there for a little while, and like basically his little bitch, um, they went a lot of places together. And a lot of people confused Larry Crayford as Oswald because he was young. He had the same, most of these kids back then had the same kind of haircut. They wore the same shit, you know. I mean, this is the early 60s. It wasn't like, you know, there was a lot of fashion options and, you know, people weren't wearing mohawks and blue hair and earrings and shit. A lot of people didn't even wear beards or goatees back then. It was clean shaven, you know, hair. You look at Michael Payne, he looks just like Lee Oswald. Okay. Um, he could have been, you know, confused for, you know, people like John Thomas Mason, Jack Lawrence. Um, and it could have been people that didn't even look like Oswald. I mean, Frazier kind of looked like Oswald in a way. Billy Lovelady kind of looked like Oswald in a way. Um, but they're just young, clean cut guys with dark hair, cut a certain way, just wore their clothes, you know, what, you know pretty shabby stuff back then, basic trousers and t-shirts or button-up shirts, nothing fancy. And, but there was also instances of, you know, people using Oswald's name, like you mentioned earlier, um, in, in New Orleans, while he's in Russia, they're trying to buy like these trucks to send to Cuba and they're using Lee Oswald's name at this Ford dealership. Well, Oswald's in Russia. So it couldn't have been him, but yet somebody here is using his name. And then that's the test drive a car. Well, that's the that was at the Lincoln Mercury dealership in Dallas, right before the assassination. But yeah, somebody, you know, supposedly Oswald didn't have a car or didn't have a license. Yeah. Yeah. He was taking lessons from Ruth Payne. But a lot of this stuff is to make the name Lee Oswald memorable beforehand. You know, it's okay, this guy's doing crazy shit. He's going, you know, speeding around the parade route in Dallas in, in, a, in a car that he's saying he's going to buy because he's going to come into a lot of money real soon. Okay. Or you have some asshole at the, at the rifle range shooting at other people's targets. You know, I'm Lee Oswald. I'll shoot whatever target I want to shoot. Okay. You know, whatever, whatever the case may be. You're making this guy, this name memorable. And it doesn't even have to look like him. It's just after the fact, people in their brains kind of connect. Okay, what well, was it that guy? Could have been that guy. Yeah, the Warren Commission, when they did, uh, were talking about Lee Harvey Oswald, they said he was discharged from the military. They made it kind of seem more like it was a mental thing rather than a, you know, what it was. When she was just let go from the military, had to go home. Yeah, his mom took a candy face or a candy yeah. jar to the he face. Back. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, things like that, I think is more right before the assassination was to make him memorable. And I think Larry Crayford got, uh, mistaken for Lee Oswald and a lot of these places where the people said they saw Jack Ruby and Oswald together. It was really, uh, this guy and Jack Ruby. So do you buy the whole Oswald hated his mother thing? Or do you think it was just like how a kid says they hate their mother? 
Uh, I don't think he did. She knew down. way too much about them to be like they never talked or anything like that, whether it was Marina feeding info or something. But yeah, I mean, look, everybody's mother is crazy in some kind of way. You know what I mean? I mean, she was a single mother raising three boys, um, which I'm sure was hard to do. You know, she even had to give um, the kids up to an orphanage at some point and then get them back. So, and they, you know, they moved around a lot and that's never good on, you know, a kid's psyche. I think they moved, I think he went to like 13 or 13 or 15 different schools up to 10th grade. So, I mean, that, that's definitely hard on somebody. And, you know, it, I don't know that, you know, he, of course he never knew his father. So he, I don't think he, he, he has a genuine hate for his mother. I mean, that's his only, only basic parent. You know what I mean? So even the worst of times, you know, you, you got to have some kind of an understanding about what, what your parent went through to get you to the point where you're at. And maybe he didn't realize it when he was younger, but, you know, as he's getting older and comes back, you know, because they, they did a lot of things as a family, you know, with him and his brother, his mother. Um, his brother hated him. I know that much, but. The mother, um, John Mancino, I can reach out to him to get him on your show if you want. He interviewed Margaret Oswald and got to know her personally for months um, during a lot of this. And when she died, she had left a note and documents that were supposed to go to John Mancino. And um, Rob, when he called the house to get the documents, Robert picked up uh, Lee's brother and said, you're not getting these documents. He goes, drop it. My brother did it. That's the end of the story. And then hung up the phone. So, yeah, we, uh, yeah. Look, I understand. I even understand Robert Oswald's perspective. Okay. You look just like the guy that just supposedly shot the president's head off. Okay. Your last name's Oswald. Where are you going to go work? How are you going to get in life? Find a communist joint. <laughs> You know, to say you're taking your family out to um, out to dinner, you know, some assholes going to be like, hey, aren't you that guy's brother that killed the president? You know, you got a wife, you got kids. Imagine his life after that. I mean, it's constantly, you, you got to constantly be watching your back. You know what I mean? Uh, not, not just for retaliation, but just to protect your family, you know, and and hopefully, you know, you're you're able to have a boss that's understanding enough to keep you employed with them and understand that you're not your brother. You know what I mean? So I'm sure he had a lot of pinup uh, rage and resentment towards Lee Oswald and what he supposedly did. Um, but if you like, if you know, if you read the story about when when Robert Oswald goes to the jail to talk to Lee after this happened you know it's it's a pretty uh low-key conversation and not really much is said um you know i think he if, if you read robert oswald's book you'll get a much better perspective on how he felt about things um so just just I think it's unfair just to classify him as pissed off at his brother 
and a dick and say, I could see where he would say, look, he did it. That's the end of the discussion. You're not getting shit. We're, we're done. And I'm sure he never wanted to bring up the assassination ever um, to anybody after that, because it just it brings up all those bad feelings and, and just bad thoughts and bad vibes. And it's just there's just no good there, you know, to come of it. So a lot of these no nonsense guys back then, that's the way they handled things. It was just, you know, forget it like it didn't happen and be done with it and move on. Try to move on, you know. Yeah, I mean, it was more than just Kennedy that died that day. It was, you know, you got Oswald that died 48 hours later, and then you had Ruby that died later on as well, too. But, I mean, if you really look at what was lost, I mean, people lost a son, people lost a father, people lost a brother. You know, a lot happened that, you know, even when you dig up, like, for witnesses and reach out to them or something, if you want to talk to them and just get some info, you know, that's hard because a lot of people that were either there at Dealey Plaza or that were around it when it happened, even some of the Parkland doctors and people that did interview. I know there's a documentary coming out with some of the Parkland doctors. It's hard to relive that. And I don't, I mean, I, I didn't really truly understand it because you're just like, I just need to know what you saw so I could figure it out. But then you realize that it is kind of traumatizing for some of these people. Um, you know, they're reliving something that's probably the worst day of their entire life over and over again, much like we mentioned with Paul Landis, you know, you mentioned leaving after a while, which I appreciate your perspective on Robert Oswald, because I'm going to have to read into his book to try and get his perspective, because everything I've read about him just seemed like he just didn't care about Lee at all, which makes it difficult to try and sympathize. But if he had different viewpoints or kind of you can understand his perspective, I, I, I can appreciate that. Because if he didn't care about Lee at all. You know, he would never have it, anything to do with him, but they were always, he would, he, Lee was, was always visiting his brother. His brother paid for him to come back, paid his loan off and come back from Russia. His, his brother let them stay at his house when they came back. Didn't he pull out a knife though or something? No. I thought no. Lee pulled out a knife or was carving something. And that's why he had to leave his brother's house the second time he came back with Marina. Oh, I've never heard that story. Yeah, that's from Gary Hill's work, uh, The Other Oswald. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I heard that. I was like, wait, so that's why? Because apparently he went, that's when, before he went to the whole New Orleans thing, when he left there, he came back and went with Robert. And then there was some, like Gary didn't go into it that much, but he said there was an issue with a knife and Lee had a knife, whether he was carving something or something like that. But Robert told him he had to go. So, sorry, didn't mean to interrupt. Oh, I don't know. The only thing I know about Oswald with a knife was when he was little and living in New York. But, uh, yeah. Um, I still don't know who he is. Did he go to Mexico City or not? That's the main fucking question. I don't know that one. Yeah, probably not. Uh, you know, it's he was probably impersonated there as well. Um, and, you know, you read the, the, like the testimony of Marita Lorenz. I was just reading through that the other day when uh, her HSCA testimony, and she swears to God that she met Oswald in 1960-61 when Oswald was supposed to be in Russia. She's got him in Florida, and she's like, "No, it's 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 the guy we called him Ozzy," and yeah, you know, but was was it really him? You know, who knows? Um, she but back Ozzie to Robert Oswald, Oswald. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but back to Robert Oswald for a minute, you know. If you weren't getting along with your brother, 
Okay. And he just shot the president, supposedly shot, just shot the president. And now he's arrested and he's sitting in jail. Are you going to give enough of a shit to go talk to him and try to take care of his family? Are you just going to say, screw that guy? You know, he's made his bed. Now he can lay in or show up to his funeral. Right. You know, there was a lot of stuff he was trying to do. Um, you know, as far as getting him a funeral, dealing with Marina and the kids and his mother and all that, you know, trying to keep everybody together after that. And it just went to shit, um, you know, resulted in, you know, Marina not ever letting Robert be an uncle to her kids. Same with, you know? Mar- same with Margaret Oswald as well, too. She yeah. She never to got to see her grandkids. Um, so yeah, it's a lot of, I mean, it, it blew that family up pretty good, you know? So I think it's always good to get in or to keep an open mind about the perspectives of these individuals who maybe are tangentially affected by everything, you know? Do you appreciate the Garrison investigation or do you think that it kind of, I don't know, went bad a little bit? I haven't really looked in so much into the Garrison's investigation of things, but I mean, from what I've heard from Margaret Oswald's words from John Mancino telling me about it or just documents and even interviews with her, I think she talks badly about Garrison and a couple of them, um, mostly because she felt like she was being used. And that's why it became hard for her to try and speak or connect with reporters or people that wanted to look for the truth or something like that, as she felt like everyone was just using her for a story. Well, as far as the Garrison investigation and her... Um, Marguerite never really had anything to offer other than her feelings about things. She haven't, she never had any proof that Oswald was any, anything one way or the other, you know, they might've written a couple letters back and forth here and there, but there was no real, you know, I can't see Oswald, you know, confiding in his mother you know, about his personal feelings and his personal convictions and his political leanings or the fact that he was an undercover spy or whatever you want to call it. Um, she's just his mother, you know? And when it comes to the Gears investigation, she really has nothing to offer to the, the case because she doesn't really know anything. Um, and in general... You know, I, I kind of see it from two different two different ways. You know, there's there's people on one side of the Garrison case that say that oh, you know, Garrison was this um narcissistic, maniacal, uh homophobe, um, you know, is, you name is that because of the Clay Shaw shit? Is he was yeah, to, yeah, okay. Yeah. You know, um, like my friend Fred Litwin, he, he's written, you know, a couple of books about it. Um, and he sees things a certain way. I, and I, I, I don't see them that way. I mean, and but I understand why he feels that way, because there are certain documents out there that can paint things a different way. You know, and when you are looking into some of these people that are connected in New Orleans, I mean, a lot of them are, for whatever reason, um, homosexual. You know, an, an inordinate number, like more David than Ferry. should be. Yeah. I didn't know yeah. he was an airline pilot or whatever the hell he was. <laughs> yeah, he was. Um, 
you know, it just so happens that these people that are, are connected and in this city at this time with this thing, you know, that they have this common bond, but it has nothing to do with the fact that Garrison is looking into the murder of the president. You know, David Ferry came on the radar for a reason. Clay Shaw came on the radar for a reason. Um, so I think the world's a better place for the Garrison investigation. I think the research community is, is in a better place because it has so much more information to work through. And there's a lot of valuable stuff that, that, that Garrison uncovered. Um, maybe a lot of stuff that he ignored and maybe should have focused on a little more. But then you're being hypercritical hyper of a man who was in an, basically in an elected position trying to do a very big thing. And there was a lot of forces trying to oppose what he's doing. And you're dealing with New Orleans in the early 60s, which was a very seedy place. You know, a port city, very seedy place. Um, lots of low lives, lots of scumbags, lots of con men. You had the mafia there. Um, you had the ex extreme right wingers there. It was just a murky, murky place back then. And to do what he did, my hat's off to him. You know, he didn't. He did not, uh, I think, well, he, he lost the case. But, uh, you know, Clay Shaw's proved to be later that he was a, a contract agent for the CIA. So he wasn't too far off base. Um, but was he a conspirator in the murder of the president? I don't, I don't think so. But that's just my feeling. I have to ask about... Um... This is probably my final question for you, really about the JFK stuff. But when it comes to, um, never mind, I just blanked out on it. Whoops. <laughs> out of the blank? No, here we go. The Camelot thing, the theory of Camelot. Do you believe in that? I don't prescribe to it. Mm, I don't either. I mean, I think it was a great idea after the fact. But at the time, it was definitely not Camelot. The The closer you looked at, you know, the president and Jackie's relationship at the time and what he was doing on the side and what she was doing on the side. And then you have the... Uh, what was she doing on the side? Same thing he was doing on the side. Damn, she was too. Okay. <laughs> I knew him. He he was doing stuff on the side, and I know people get mad when you bring it up, but I didn't know she was. Yeah, yeah. So that that that's just one of those things that don't embarrass me in public. Do what you want. I'm gonna do what I want. Don't don't embarrass me in public, you know, type of things. Cause she was not oblivious to what he was doing. And if she, and if he's doing it, well, what's good for the goose is good for the gander, you know what I'm saying? It was that statement from Connolly's wife that got me to think something was going on there, which was when Connolly, she, Connolly's wife was on the whatever interview, whatever it was, and on television. And she goes, when I turned around, I thought it was weird that I was the only one that was covering my husband. Because Jackie jumped on the back of the limo immediately and started going 
backwards. And to me, I was like, I don't, I mean, obviously I'm overthinking it a little bit by going into it and speculating on that type of stuff. But to me, that was before I knew any of them were really having affairs. I mean, I heard stuff about the JFK and Marilyn Monroe, but that was about it. But when she says that, like she cared about her husband, she covered her husband. I'm sure they cared about each other, but also her first instinct was to get the fuck out of the limousine. Jackie's was. Well, yeah, her her husband didn't have his head fucking blown off. You know what I'm saying? Like, he's just wounded, <laughs> you know? I mean, there's nothing you can do for when your husband's head I don't exposed. know. I've seen that videotape. It looked like the bullet just went in. Yeah. I'm kidding. <laughs> you know, I mean, as soon as Connolly got shot, I mean, he's 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 headed over into her lap. Like, yeah. like that. You know, like, protect me, you know? Um. And there was nothing Jackie could do at that point. I mean, she she was, you know, down there, you know, trying to, you know, I think she might even have her hand on the side of his head, you know, trying to look at him, see if he's okay. And then his head gets blown apart. Yeah. You know, I mean, what what are you supposed to do? It's a split second, you know. You can't fault somebody for not acting in a split second, you know. Do you think uh, there was a front shot? Like, are you, do you prescribe to that? I do. I, I do. Too. Do you think that, um, I mean, what, will that change the magic bullet theory? I mean, obviously that it can't exist if there is a front shot, but I mean, do you think the front shot came from like the South Knoll? Like some people think, do you think it just came from? I think it came from the grassy knoll. Okay. The South Knoll to me, um, there's just too much in between south knoll and kennedy and i I just did a a show talking about the windshield and limousine you know how people said oh no it had a hole through it yeah they said you could stick a pencil through it or something like that i i've seen pictures of it unless i'm looking at a different one it just looks like a chip it looks like it yeah and it's on the inside of the of the glass and then it splinters out a little bit so basically a fragment hit the window um, it was either bone or bullet or who knows what it was, but it, it was just a back. fragment of something. So, and it, it, so if it didn't come through the windshield, then then you're risking hitting the driver, Nelly, Jackie, you know, or any any combination of any of that to get to Kennedy. It had to come from the side where the that's why the head went that way back into the left is because it came from, so it didn't even need to hit the windshield. It must've just gone right by Connolly or whoever. And you have so many, so many people saying that they felt that shots were coming from the knoll that you just can't ignore it. I mean, it's, it's up into like the thirties and forties, 30 or 40 people, you know, who were closest to the limousine said shots were coming from the knoll. So it's 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 kind of hard to uh, ignore that, and of course people will poo poo it, say, "Oh, it was just the echo effect, and you know this, that, and the other." You couldn't tell where the shots were coming from, but you know, to me, that would have been the perfect place, and you could get away real easy. When they remodeled the Dealey Plaza, they when they put the new fence in, it's it was interesting to me that someone had written in Sharpie on the new fence saying the trees saw everything. I go, that's some dude who takes a lot of acid that gets the main message of this thing as well, too, because that's such a that's a that's a quote that should be solidified there. The trees saw everything. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yep. And I was just uh 
I just got Joan Mellon's other book. It's, it's a biography on Jim Garrison. And she talks about Jim Garrison and uh, interviewing Jack Martin. And he was going to name the chapter something like The Man Under the Oak Tree. Because there was some old analogy about, you know, wisdom and, and being imparted and, and living in these trees. And uh, what you just said made me think of that because um, the trees saw everything. You know, they knew everything. They see everything. And they're here long after we're gone, you know. And if there was only a way for, you know, uh, these trees to talk, we would know the truth. I know. You technology. Know? Get on that shit. Right. For God's <laughs> sakes, I can send a text message to someone halfway across the world. But, yeah, we can't get a damn tree to talk to us. I know. We can get the chronovisor from the Vatican and we can go back and see what happened. Honestly, someone should look into the Vatican. That's a little <laughs> bit more important. <laughs> Rob, no, I appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show, man. It's always a pleasure being able to chat with you. Um, I also appreciate uh, all the times we've talked in the past and also listening to your show as well, too. If I fall asleep listening to your show, for some reason, it tosses me on the, um, the tinfoil hat show. I don't know why. Hey, there's nothing wrong with the Sam Tripoli and the Tinfoil Hat podcast. I listen to it all the time myself. Love those guys. They get shit wrong about the JFK assassination yeah. all the time. Driver did. That's what they say. Yeah. Yeah. But other than that, uh, it's a very entertaining show. I love Sam Tripoli as a comedian and it makes me laugh, which I want to be entertained. I don't necessarily always need to be informed. Sometimes I just like to be entertained. So, uh, well, I'm in, good, I'm in good company. If it's kicking you over there after me, then that's cool. It's okay because people listen to mine and then they get tossed on a Theo Vaughn's, which apparently I have this. I have the same mannerisms, apparently. Um, but no, Rob, where can people find your links, man? Seriously, I appreciate what you do with your podcast, and I think it's important. I always recommend yours to um, anyone that really wants to dive deep into the JFK stuff. Yeah, the podcast is everywhere. Um, you can listen to podcasts, quick hits as well that I do with Doug. And all the socials are at the Lone Gunman 7. You can follow along. And also the Lone Gunman Podcast YouTube channel is, let's just say you might want to start paying more attention to it after the 60th. Uh, something big is coming. So if you're not already subscribed, people, make sure you subscribe to get notified and ring the little bell and all that happy horse shit. Uh, you won't want to miss it. Something new is coming. Something big is coming. So stay tuned for that. And thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank. Stay tuned for our next episode.